All right, well, good morning, Weymouth. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Welcome once again. We're glad you're all here as we've made our way into December here, the first uh, Sunday of, of Advent officially. So welcome to Christmas time. We'll be uh, doing a lot of, uh, I think, joyful things this morning. We'll be celebrating Advent. We'll be celebrating communion together as well. We'll be singing together, sitting under God's word together. So we're really glad you're here. We're really glad you're participating in this with us. Um, as we get started, let's just take a moment and bow our heads and pray in silent prayer and reflection. psalmist writes, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your name among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And so, Father, we praise you this morning because you are the God who works wonders. Because there is no one like you. You are infinitely worthy of our praise. And so as we enter into the wonder of this season, as we uh, celebrate Advent, as we anticipate uh, Christmas and remember the arrival of your Son, our wonderful Counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace, we thank you for this time. Help us to be filled with wonder this season wonder at the works you have wrought in Christ, your Son, our Savior, and help us to praise you in response because of how wonderful you are. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand and we'll sing together. Can we get holy as the Lord, please? Worship him now, how great. 
Announcements uh, to make you aware of this morning as we uh, continue on in our, our worship service. Uh, tomorrow night, our women's ministry will be holding a, a ladies' uh, candle night prayer night. It's called Mary, Did You Know? It's uh, going to be a time for, for ladies of all ages to come and spend some time in silence and prayer and reflection as we go through the Christmas season. It'll be a good time to, to pray and uh, connect with the Lord. And that's going to start at, at 6.30 uh, here tomorrow night. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, be sure to take advantage of that, participate in that tomorrow night, the, the Women's Prayer Night. And then also, as you think about uh, Christmas celebrations, we'll be uh, gathering together on the, the 17th during our regular worship service at 1030. We'll have uh, a time for the kids to sing a few songs in the service. And then afterwards, we'll have a time of, of hot chocolate and Christmas cookies uh, in the community room afterwards. So we encourage you to invite friends, family, neighbors, uh, teachers, coaches uh, that might want to hear the kids sing in the service. They've been practicing really hard on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, um, so we're excited to see them sing as part of our service and then to, to celebrate and fellowship together afterwards. So that's the 17th, and then the following week, that Sunday, Christmas Eve, we'll have two services. We'll have one at 1030 uh, in the morning, which is our regular service time, and then we'll also have uh, another candlelight service at 6 p.m. Uh, on Christmas Eve. So there are a number of, of services to be aware of. A number of times we'll, we'll gather together to celebrate this Christmas season. Uh, so be sure to be paying attention to the bulletin, to our website, to our, our app, uh, LamethChurch.com, the Church Center app, uh, to just keep up with all these things uh, going on. But then also as we think about Christmas, uh, as we sit at the start of the service this morning, is uh, the first Sunday in Advent. And what we do during Advent, what Advent is, is, is this is just a, a time where really intentionally as a church... Uh, we, we remember and anticipate 
the coming of Christ into the world. This word Advent, it just means arrival. And so when we celebrate Advent, we are remembering the arrival of Christ, that God in his grace sent his son into the world to, to take on human flesh, to uh, be born as a baby, to come and rescue God's people. And so what we'll be doing during the next uh, four weeks is we have this, this wreath with some candles, and uh, the, the, the candles symbolize this process of, of waiting and anticipating uh, during this Advent season. And so each week we'll read uh, scripture and we'll light one of the candles as a reminder of how Christ and his coming uh, came as our light in the darkness. So to kick this off this morning, I'll just read from us in the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. It says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so we light this first candle of Advent uh, in remembrance and celebration and anticipation of the coming of Christ into the world, Christ who came to be our king, our saving king. So hopefully, yep, it works. Good. That was scary for a second. You never know. So is it tilting? Oh, fun. How's that? Straight? All right. Oh, that was almost worse. There we go. All right. We'll see. There's still time. You never know. All right. Well, please uh, pray with me. Well, Father, we thank you for this season as a church family, for this time of Advent where we can uh, remember the birth of Christ, remember the coming of Christ into the world. We thank you that you sent your son to be our perfect king, our perfect savior, to usher in a kingdom that will have no end. And so help us as we live often in darkness, as we deal with the realities of sin and suffering, help us to look to the light of Christ who's come into the world to be our Savior. And Lord, we lift up those who are, who are particularly uh, faced with the darkness of the world right now. Lord, we lift up uh, Russ and Carol Kinnebrew and their family to you as, uh, as they mourn the, the recent loss of Russ's sister Angela. Lord, help them as they travel this week and spend time with family and uh, go to the, the service uh, on Tuesday. Just, just bless and encourage them, Lord, with one another's company. Help them to, to mourn together, to, to, to know your, your love and your peace and the, uh, and the, and the, the love and peace uh, of one another and their family. Bring them, Lord, more of your grace to endure this time of grief. Help Carol as she continues to recover from surgery and as she travels, Lord, just uh, be their strength, be their portion during this difficult time. We also lift up Connie Sinek to you and then your husband Vic and, and we just ask that you'll help them as they continue to navigate the darkness of, of cancer and, and of this, this sickness and the pain that's associated with that. Give them, give them a sweetness to this time during this season remembering the hope that they have in Christ, the light of the world. We also pray for, uh, for Bill Fredericy as he's uh, anticipating a potential uh, heart surgery to get stints put in and as he waits to hear from doctors and, and navigates the, the physical challenges of that, Lord, guard him, protect him, help him, uh, 
Help them to look to you at that hope and the strength that only you can provide. And help us to do the same as we come alongside Bill during this, uh, this difficult time. And Lord, help others. Help those all over the world who are facing the darkness of, of persecution and uh, challenge and sickness and pain. Help those who uh, this season it is more of a time of darkness than a time of light. Those who are suffering from, from loss or grief or sadness or despair even uh, during this season. Remind them, remind us of the light you have brought into the world in your Son. Lord, let this be the light that we take to others, not the light of our own talents or our own personalities, our own uh, accomplishments or uh, achievements. Lord, help us to look to Christ alone as our light and to show others how his light shines in the darkness, no matter how dark that darkness is. So remind us of that and help us to praise you in response, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, now we're going to dismiss the, our children, our kids, to Weymouth Kids. So uh, you guys can go back with Mrs. Martin. No, we're not coming up here. We're going back this week because it's communion week. There you go. Good try. <laughs> All right, and then the rest of us will stand and sing a couple songs together. So please stand and sing with us.
conquer the grave, Lord. We, we do not need to fear death anymore because of the work that your son did. Lord, I pray that uh, in this season of, of giving and, and receiving, Lord, I pray that we would receive your greatest gift of the gospel of your son, Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would live that out every day. Uh, I also pray for uh, Pastor Chris as he comes to deliver your word, Lord, that um, during this time of Christmas and and, uh, and all of this going on around us, Lord, that we would still be able to remain focused on your word. Lord, I pray all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles here to the book of Micah. Book of Micah, chapter 2. Uh, we, are, we are going through, we started going through Micah last week, and Micah will take us through uh, Christmas and beyond into the new year. Um, it's, it's a great book to be in in this this season, um, because the, the movement of the book of Micah really is, is a movement of, of darkness, and, and we see that as we go through the book, even it recapitulates, it goes in, in cycles, you go darkness, then light, then darkness, then light, then darkness, then light, so it's a reminder of, of how dark things are, but also 
the, the light and the hope that we have in Christ and how we need to remember and rejoice in that hope again and again and again. And so this morning we'll look at uh, Micah 2, which continues kind of the first main section in the book of Micah. It's a, a section that's really filled with, with darkness, with announcing God's judgment. But as we come to the end of the chapter, we'll start to see some light break through. Uh, so I'll, I'll read for us the chapter starting in verse 1. So follow along as I read in Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The woman of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher of his people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Amen. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Well, Father, as we come to your word now as we uh, look at a, a prophecy like this that may be uh, challenging to understand or challenging to accept. Lord, help us to uh, have humble hearts, have receptive hearts. Show us clearly the reality of our own sin, but also show us uh, brilliantly and beautifully the hope that we have in Christ, our King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in his book, uh, Just Mercy, uh, the author Brian Stevenson, who's a lawyer and an activist and a believer, he writes this. He says, The true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. And if what Brian Stevenson says is true, 
if the test of a society's character is how they treat the poor and the marginalized, then the people of Judah in Micah's day would have failed that test. They would have failed that test because in his prophecy, Micah, like a good lawyer, he is bringing the Lord's indictment against his own people. He's declaring against them how God is prosecuting his people. He's declaring God's judgment against his people for their sin. And so last week we saw in chapter 1 how, God, how Micah uh, announced God's judgment against the idolatry of God's people. And then this morning in chapter 2 what we see is how uh, Micah announces God's judgment against the injustice of his people. Chapter 1, God judges the idolatry of his people. Chapter 2, God judges the injustice of his people. And as we read this chapter, we discover that God is holy and just. That he perfectly passes this test. He perfectly cares for the poor, the disfavored, the marginalized. That he will not let oppression and injustice and wickedness go unpunished. But then even as he promises God's judgment, God's disaster against injustice, Micah also promises God's salvation, God's deliverance for a remnant of his people. A deliverance that's going to come through a shepherd king. Micah promises the coming of a truly just king who will gather his people like a shepherd and who will deliver them from disaster. So the message of this chapter for us this morning is that injustice brings disaster, but the shepherd king brings deliverance. Injustice brings disaster, but the shepherd king brings deliverance. And so we'll see this in the text by looking first at the disaster of injustice in verses 1 to 11. And then we'll look at the deliverance of the shepherd king in verses 12 to 13. So disaster and deliverance. First, the disaster of injustice in the first 11 verses. Because remember, Micah, he was a, a prophet in Judah, which was the, the southern kingdom at that time. There was two kingdoms in Israel that had been divided through civil war. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Micah was a prophet in Judah during a time of, of economic growth for the kingdom, economic growth that had begun under King Uzziah. And so it was, it was growing economically, this kingdom, but it seems that this economic growth in Judah was actually creating new opportunities for injustice, for oppression, for greed and wickedness. As we read verse 1, Micah, he vividly describes those who devise wickedness from their beds and then who use their power and their privilege to carry out that wickedness at the rising of the sun. Many of us have trouble sleeping at night. This is a fairly common thing, right? Many of us have trouble sleeping. Sometimes at night as we're lying in our beds, our minds are so filled with the events of the day, with excitement or dread or fear of tomorrow, that we can't sleep. Our minds are too occupied. Our emotions are too engaged. So we, we can't fall asleep. We lose sleep. But the things that kept the people of Judah up at night at this time in Micah's day the things that kept them awake at night was not their uh, thoughts about the day. It was not their, their fear of tomorrow. Micah's saying that what kept them up at night was their own plotting, their own devising of wickedness. They lost sleep over plotting injustice. 
And then the next morning, uh, as the sun rose, they used their power, their privilege, their influence to carry out this wickedness, to carry out this injustice. And Micah goes on to tell us explicitly what this wickedness was, what this injustice was. He describes how these people in Judah were coveting and seizing fields and houses, how they were oppressing others and stealing their inheritance. At this time in Judah, a person's wealth was wrapped up in their land. Their land was considered their their greatest possession, their inheritance. It was usually passed from one generation to the next. And as the people of Judah lived in the promised land that God had given them, they saw that that promised land itself as, as their inheritance from God, as land that God himself owned and had chosen in his grace to give to his people. The teaching of the Old Testament was that this land belonged to the Lord. And so in coveting this land and stealing it and using their economic or political or military power to take this land from other people, these unjust figures, these land barons Micah's writing against, they weren't just stealing from their neighbors. They weren't just stealing from man. They were stealing from God himself. They were robbing God. They were using unjust means of oppression to steal the riches and the inheritance that God himself had given his people. These unjust figures, these these, these land grabbers, they, they trampled over the dominion and the dignity of their neighbors, of their fellow Israelites. They trampled over the dominion and dignity that had been given to these people by God himself. And they used their power to devise ways, to create structures, to create plots, to to take from others, to enrich themselves. And so God's word through Micah is a word of woe to these unjust people. It's a word of woe. It's a word of judgment. For just as they devised wickedness against their neighbors, so God now is devising disaster against them. This is the promise in verse 3 that the devising of injustice by man leads to the devising of disaster by God. God doesn't uh, respond to man's injustice with a simple shrug of his shoulders. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He is not a distant, uncaring God who watches humanity like ants in a farm. He is not uh, unmoved by the ways that we destroy and oppress each other. He's not a neutral wildlife observer who just lets things play out as they naturally would. No, he cares about injustice. God is holy and just. He is perfect. So the sins, the wickedness, the injustice of his people brings out the wrath, the just wrath and judgment of God. And so he brings disaster against the authors of oppression and wickedness. And what's striking here is that God's justice, it perfectly fits the injustice of his people. The punishment fits the crime. Because God promises in verse 4 that his people will, will moan bitterly that they are utterly ruined. That God has removed their portion from them. That he has allotted their fields to apostates. And what, what he's saying here is that God is promising that just as these unjust people have stolen land and inheritance from others, So now God is going to take their land from them. God is going to send a foreign nation. He's going to use a foreign nation to conquer his people, to remove their land from them, to take their land and send them into exile. 
He's going to bring a foreign conqueror who's going to come in and leave them so destitute that they won't even have an heir or a representative to stake their claim for an inheritance. This is God's promise that as these people plotted injustice, he is now plotting disaster against them because he takes their injustice seriously. And as we read this then, for us, this is a sober reminder. It's a sober reminder of how easily power can be used to carry out oppression and injustice. How easily power and privilege can become tools that are used to trample over the dignity and the dominion of other people. And we don't have to look very far in our world today to see examples of this kind of injustice to find uh, people or leaders or institutions or nations who are devising ways to use their power to take land or status or security from other people. You don't have to look very far to see this because the truth is we live in a fallen, corrupted world because of sin. We live in a world that is filled with injustice and oppression with people who use their power to oppress the dignity and dominion of their neighbors for the sake of their own gain. And so much of our public discourse in the world and and culture today, it's focused on how to deal with this problem. In our own country today, there are lots of public and private debates going on about how to to make sense of or how to make right uh, our, our own nation's history of oppression and injustice against minorities. Things like slavery and and segregation, the abuse of women and other minorities and other people groups. There's conversations being had about how we deal with this, what we do, how we make restitution, how we talk about it in our communities, in our households, in our schools. Maybe some of you got into some of that during Thanksgiving with your families. These conversations are going around, and if you spend any time, especially with the younger generations, you'll see how deeply and passionately they're concerned for issues of justice and equality and oppression. This is is a major topic, a major issue in our world. And the great news we have as a church is God has something to say about it. God's word has something to say about injustice and how we should uh, deal with the present day instances of injustice and oppression and abuse on how we should respond to the reality that injustice and oppression, they're systemic both in individual hearts and in cultural institutions because we live in a fallen world. The Bible has something to say about uh, what we do about this, how we respond, how God thinks about this. And that's important because uh, many people today, both inside and outside the church, are, are desperately looking for wisdom, are desperately looking for wisdom in a world that's increasingly demanding justice in a world that's increasingly demanding, but also disagreeing on where true justice comes from. So in the midst of all this, we have the word of God through Micah, that there is a God of ultimate justice, that there is an ultimate judge of all who does not ignore the oppression of the weak, who does not dismiss the injustice even of his own people, who devises disaster against those who devise wickedness because this is part of God's character this is part of who he is he is holy and just he will destroy sin and injustice and evil but if we're honest 
this aspect of God's character, his, his justice, it, it can be hard for people to accept because we know that deep down, if we're really, really honest with ourselves, that we ourselves are unjust, that we ourselves are full of sin and wickedness, that we ourselves are often oppressors, that we don't treat our neighbors with perfect equity, that we break God's commands, his just and right rules, that we often use others to get what we want, that knowingly or unknowingly we often participate in and benefit from structures that promote the oppression of others. And so if God is truly holy, if he is truly just, then we are not on his side. We deserve not his acceptance. We ultimately deserve his judgment. We deserve his justice. His indictment falls on us as well. This word of woe falls on us as well. And so we can have a hard time with this truth of God's holiness and his justice. But so did people in Micah's day. Look at verse 6 here. In verse 6, he uses a, a bit of clever wordplay to describe uh, other prophets who preach that he should not preach such things. Micah was kind of like the Old Testament prophet equivalent of a dad joke, right? He's like the expert in Old Testament dad jokes. We saw this in chapter 1 where he was using names of villages to make a point. We see this here where he, he uses the word preach in kind of a funny dad jokey kind of way, right? He, he, he says that there are people who preach that he should not preach, people who preach that he should not preach such things as God's judgment. People who preach against Micah's preaching of God's judgment, saying that disgrace will not overtake us. Now what's going on here in verse 6 is that Micah's prophecy, as he proclaims it in Jerusalem to the people of Judah, his, his prophecy of God's judgment was met by other prophets, other people who claim to speak for God, other uh, spiritual teachers in Judah, and they pushed back against Micah's teaching. They pushed back against Micah's proclamation of God's holiness and justice and judgment. They claimed that their covenant God would never destroy them in this way. He would never bring them into disgrace in this way. And so what these prophets were doing, these false prophets, is they were taking for granted God's faithfulness to his people. They were laying the spiritual groundwork for this injustice to be carried out in Judah. Because what they were saying was they were saying that, that God's promises to his people would ultimately lead him to overlook their sin and injustice. What they were doing is what we often do, is, is they magnified the faithful and merciful character of God, but they dismissed or they ignored the, the just character of God, the judgment of God, the holy character of God. And this is something we're tempted to do today as well. We love to think about God as loving and accepting no matter what. We love to think of God as loving and merciful, almost as, as a heavenly grandpa who, who will always uh, forgive us, who will never judge us, who will always accept us no matter what we do, who will always give us what we want and what we need. Because after all, God is love. And yes, God is love. God is perfect love. But his perfect love also includes perfect justice, perfect holiness. Because God's character is revealed in Scripture, not in, in, in an apologetic, accepting, heavenly grandpa. No, he is revealed in Scripture as holy and just and glorious, as a God who will vanquish and destroy evil. And in fact, if it were true that God was, was, was only love, 
that his love did not include justice. If he was just this heavenly grandpa figure who had no wrath or judgment against sin, that would actually be really bad news for the world. It would be really bad news for the world because it would mean that the creator of the world was not truly just. And so it would mean that we really have no real justice in the world. Martin Luther King Jr., he famously said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He said that, but that statement is only true if this world was created by a God who himself is just. If the world was created and sustained by a holy, just God who will judge evil. Because think about this. If there was no God, if there was no God, if the world was just a product of evolution, if the world was just a collection of atoms, then why would we ever expect to find justice in the world? Why would we ever expect to find equality? Why would we ever expect evil to be punished? If the world came together, if the world was developed through merely evolution, through merely survival of the fittest, then why would we consider it unjust when the powerful oppress the weak? Isn't that just survival of the fittest? Isn't that just, the, isn't that just natural selection? If there is no God, if we are all just, just animals, if this is just all a, a jungle, why would we expect human beings to be any more just than the animals? Why does it hurt our hearts, break our hearts when we see evil and injustice perpetrated in the world? We see the strong taking advantage of the weak. Why do we have that sense in our hearts that this is not right? That it should not be this way? Because there is a God who created the world. There is a God who is just and who is holy. And we are made in his image. And so even though we are corrupted by sin, we still have a sense of his justice, of his rightness, of his goodness. And think about this as well. If, if there was a God, but if he was merely a gentle grandpa or a gentle genie who was only accepting, who never had a word of judgment against sin, who just existed to solve our problems and put up with our mistakes and accept us no matter what, and was not perfectly holy and just, if that was the kind of God who existed, then again, we would never expect the arc of the universe to bend towards justice because we would have no basis in it. If, if God himself wasn't even just, why would we expect people to be just? Why would we expect there to be justice or equality in the world? Why would we expect there to be an ultimate judge who brings disaster against injustice? If God isn't just, that'd be really bad news for the world. If this world wasn't created by a God who is holy and good, that would mean there's no true goodness in the world. But thanks be to God that in his word, God has revealed to us as holy and just, as perfectly loving, but also perfectly just and good and holy. And that's important because we live in a strange time where people are longing for ultimate justice and equality on the one hand, but they're also longing for ultimate acceptance and love on the other hand. We live in a world where we want every thought or every feeling to be accepted, to be affirmed. But we also want, want justice. We want in the injustices of the world to be defeated. We want our own sinful impulses to be accepted and affirmed, but we want the sinful impulses of others to be destroyed and beaten and killed. But the only possible way we, we find that, the only possible way we find ultimate justice and ultimate acceptance is if the world has been created and sustained by a God who is both ultimately just and ultimately loving. A God who is working in the world to bring about true justice, but also true acceptance. And that is who God has revealed to be for us in the Bible. 
That is who he is, a God whose love is perfectly just, who will not excuse the injustice and the idolatry that destroys those he loves, but does something about it, works against it. And we need this just God if we are to have any hope of a moral universe that bends towards justice. But as we've said, as we've seen, and I hope you're seeing as we talk about this, that the problem is that we ourselves deserve this judgment. That we ourselves, because of the idolatry and the injustice inside our own hearts, we deserve the condemnation, the wrath of a holy and just and good God. His justice is good news for the world, but it's not good news for us. Because we are lost, we are sinful, we deserve his judgment. Because even though we were made to be his people, we act more like his enemies. This was the tragedy of Judah's injustice. Micah declares in verse 8 that God's people have, have risen up as an enemy. They've risen up as an enemy. Instead of acting like the people of God, they have instead acted like the enemies of God. They have stolen rich robes from those who pass by. They have driven out women from their homes. And here Micah is likely referring to widows, to widows who have their homes uh, taken or stolen from them. And Micah rages against this injustice because in swallowing up widows' homes and taking away their land, these, these unjust figures, they're stealing this widow's livelihood. They're stealing the inheritance of her fatherless children. And James tells us in the book of James, chapter 1, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's what true religion is, but the people of Judah have done the opposite. They have stolen and widows' homes. They have not cared for widows and orphans. Instead, they have robbed and oppressed widows and their children, the most vulnerable people in their midst. And so once again, God ironically punishes, ironically promises a punishment that fits the crime. He declares in verse 10 that just as these people have risen up as an enemy, so too will they arise and rise up to go, to go out. They're going to be led out because their land is no place to rest. Their land is no place to rest because it's been made unclean by their injustice. It will be destroyed with a grievous destruction. God is going to bring the injustice of his people back down on their own heads. He's going to rob them of their land and send them into exile because that is what they've been doing to other people. But even then, as Micah announces this, as he announces God's promise to bring disaster against his people... Micah also turns and announces God's promise to bring deliverance for his people, for a remnant justice. He's also going to gather a portion. He's going to gather a remnant of his people. He's going to shelter them and bring them into a place of safety. He's going to gather them together like a shepherd gathers his sheep into the fold, his flock into the pasture. God is promising in verse 12, he's going to be the shepherd who gathers this remnant to himself who protects them even from disaster, even the disaster he's going to bring, the disaster he's going to bring for his people's sins, even as he brings that judgment, his people are not going to be completely destroyed. God is going to preserve and protect and gather a remnant. And not only is God going to gather this remnant in, he's also going to lead this remnant out. He's going to deliver them out of disaster as their king. This is what he's saying in verse 13, where Micah declares, He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass by the gate, going out by it. 
their king passes on before them the Lord at their head. And this language here, this imagery here in verse 13, it's, 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 it's of one who opens up a breach, who goes before them. This is, this is warlike language. This is warlike imagery. What Micah is describing in verse 13, Micah is describing the breaking of a siege. A siege. If you've seen the movie, uh, The Two Towers, I know I quote Tolkien a lot, but this one's from the movies, not the book, so it's different. Um, if you've seen the movie The Two Towers, then you'll remember that the, this great scene at the end of The Two Towers where the, the, the people of Rohan, this kingdom, they are, they are uh, hiding, they are taking shelter in this great fortress, Helm's Deep. They're taking shelter in this great fortress from this invading army that has, is laying siege to the fortress, is laying siege to their shelter. They're hiding behind its walls, but then uh, as all hope seems lost, when the enemies have begun to break through the walls of the fortress... Inside the fortress, Theoden, who's the, the king of Rohan, he looks to, to Aragorn, who's another promised king. And he asks Aragorn, as the enemy is breaking through the walls, he says, what can man do in the face of such reckless hate? What can man do in the face of such reckless hate? And looking at King Theoden, Aragorn, he responds, he says, ride out with me, ride out and meet them. And then with the blowing of horns and the galloping of hooves, these two kings, they, they get on their horses and they lead their soldiers out and they break through the gate and they break the siege just as the cavalry arrives. It's this great moment. It's one of the great scenes in, in, in film. And this is the picture we have in verse 13 of a king who goes at the head of his people, who breaks through an impossible siege to lead them out of the gate. And indeed, this use, this use of the word gate here in verse 13 is really important because Micah has used this word two other times so far in the book. He's used this word gate twice in chapter 1, in verses 9 and verses 12. And both times when he used it, he was describing how God's judgment has come to the gate of Jerusalem, how God's disaster has come to the doorstep, the doorstep of Judah, of his people. Micah has been saying that the Lord himself is the one who is laying siege to his people. He is the one bringing disaster, bringing his judgment to their gate, to their doorstep because of their idolatry and their injustice. But now in verses 12 and 13, Micah is saying that the same God who brought disaster to the gate of his people is also the king who is going to break the siege and deliver a remnant out of the gate, deliver a remnant out of disaster. And so if we're reading this, we should be asking the question, how is this possible? How is this possible? How can God be both the one who brings disaster against his people for their sin, but also brings deliverance for his people, for his remnant, from this disaster? How could God do both? How can this be possible? Well, the rest of the Bible gives us the answer. The history of Scripture, the storyline of the Bible, makes it clear for us, because as we continue reading, in the Bible, we'll, we'll know, we'll discover that, yeah, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south, both of them were conquered. They were conquered and sent off to exile. Israel was conquered and sent off to Assyria. Judah was conquered by Babylon. They were exiled to Babylon. But even in that disaster of exile, God did not completely destroy his people. We can read in books like Esther, books like Daniel, about how God worked through his people to protect this remnant even in the midst of exile, 
to protect them, to secure them, to gather them in. And then ultimately, God allowed his people to return back to Jerusalem, to return out of exile. And he used figures like Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So even as God brought the disaster of exile to his people for their sin, he still preserved them. He preserved a remnant. They were not ultimately destroyed. They were ultimately gathered back from exile, back into the city of Jerusalem. But even then, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't a full restoration. Because even when they came back to the promised land, the people of Israel still suffered under the oppression of foreign nations, under the oppression of the Roman Empire, who was ruling over God's people by the time we get into the New Testament. And so we read about figures like Herod in the book of Luke, who are ruling over Judea. But in the midst of all this, in the midst of this oppression at the beginning of the New Testament, in the midst of a world where the powerful use their power and their privilege to oppress the dignity and dominion of others, in the midst of all of this, a king was born. A king who was himself a victim of injustice and oppression from the moment he was born. A king who was born outside of his homeland, who was a refugee, who was born in a humble stable in Bethlehem. A king who, as a baby, was forced to flee with his family to Egypt to escape a corrupt ruler who was killing children. A king who would grow up to be a traveling teacher who would have no land, no home to call his own, no inheritance of his own, who would ultimately be arrested and mocked and scourged and crucified. A king who would himself be exiled outside of the city of Jerusalem who would have his own cloak stolen from him, who would be nailed naked and humiliated to the cross of a criminal. And on this cross outside of Jerusalem was hung a sign that read, the King of the Jews. Because this was the charge against this crucified king, that he had claimed to be the king of God's people, that he had claimed to be their shepherd, that he had claimed to be the very son of God. And so they killed him in oppression and injustice on the cross. Because of this claim, Jesus Christ was crucified. He experienced the ultimate injustice, the ultimate oppression. But more than that, on the cross, he also experienced the ultimate disaster. On the cross, Jesus didn't just experience the disaster of pain and humiliation. On the cross, Jesus experienced the disaster, the ultimate disaster of God's judgment for sin. He experienced the ultimate word of woe, the ultimate indictment that we deserve. Even though Jesus was perfectly innocent, even though he had lived a life without sin, without idolatry or injustice, on the cross, Jesus bore God's ultimate justice, his ultimate judgment against idolatry and injustice, the ultimate judgment, the ultimate disaster that we deserve. And then Jesus died under the weight of this disaster, this judgment. He died and it looked to the eyes of the world that this king had been conquered, that he had been defeated, that he was, he was done. But then on the third day, he rose again. He brought life and victory out of the disaster of death. And because Jesus rose again, because he came back to life, we can know, church, we can know that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't being conquered by his enemies. When Jesus died on the cross, he was breaking the siege. He was breaking the siege. He, was going, he had gone through the gate of Jerusalem. 
in order to die on a cross in our place so that he can be the one who leads us out of the gate, who delivers us from disaster because he took that disaster on himself. And so at the cross, what we see is we see how God can both bring disaster against his people and be the one who can deliver his people from that disaster. Because on the cross, Jesus bore the disaster of God's justice for us so that in him, if we trust in him, we can be delivered from what we deserve. As Paul puts it in Romans 3, because of the death and the resurrection of Christ, God is able to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In Christ, God is able to be both perfectly, ultimately just, but also perfectly, ultimately loving and accepting. In Christ, if we believe in him, we can know perfect justice, the justice that we deserve but are spared from. We can see that God is perfectly just, but we can also be perfectly and completely accepted because of what Jesus did for us, not because of our own merit. You see, Micah promised a shepherd king who would come and deliver his people out of disaster, who would gather God's people, who would break the siege, who would lead them through the gate. And Jesus came to be this shepherd king. He is the shepherd king who delivers us from the disaster that we deserve. But he's not just the king. Jesus is also himself the gate. He is the gate through whom we are delivered. This is what he said in John chapter 10. Jesus declared, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, we live in a world that's filled with idolatry, with injustice. We ourselves are guilty of these same sins before God. But in Christ, through faith in our shepherd king, we can be delivered from the disaster that we deserve. We can be brought through the door to find pasture. We can be gathered in as the flock, as the people of God. Because Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for us, who rose again in victory. And if we found this deliverance, if we've trusted in Christ, our shepherd, our king, if we've been gathered and delivered in him, then the question is, how are we to respond to the idolatry and injustices of the world? How are we to respond to the vestiges of sin and selfishness that remain in our own hearts? As Theoden put it, what can man do in the face of such reckless hate? And the answer that we have in Christ is ride out with me. Ride out and meet them. Because he who opened the breach goes before us. Because our king passes on before us. The Lord is at our head. Amen. Amen. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you for this word which reveals to us who you are, which reveals to us how you are both perfectly just and perfectly loving, how in Christ we can know uh, perfect acceptance 
We can experience true justice. We can know you, you as you are, as you've been revealed to us. And Lord, as we've believed this, as we've heard this, Lord, lead us to go from here, to ride out from here, declaring how you have broken through the siege, how you have brought deliverance from disaster, how we have an answer for the world, a hope for the world that includes both perfect justice and perfect love. So help us to go and proclaim this through our actions, through our words. Help us to go and share this with our neighbors, to invite them to come in to know our shepherd king who brings us the ultimate deliverance that we can never achieve for ourselves. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's respond with another song. And then we'll uh, finish our time around the Lord's table. So please stand and sing with us. The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea. solid ground the Lord is my salvation I will not fear when darkness falls His strength will help me scale these walls I'll see the dawn of the rising sun the Lord my salvation who is like the Lord our God strong to save faithful in love my debt is paid and the victory won the Lord is my salvation hidden in the Lord. He flows each promise of His word. When winter fades, I know spring will come. The Lord is my salvation. In times of waiting, times of
Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is a, a public proclamation, a public remembrance that we uh, participate in together when we come around the Lord's table and we celebrate communion. This is a time where we look at the symbol of the bread, the symbol of the cup, to remind ourselves, to remind one another of, of how Christ has, has broken the siege, how through his death, through his resurrection, through the breaking of his body, through the shedding of his blood, he, he has paid the perfect just price for our sins. And how, and how through trusting him, we can find that perfect acceptance with God our Father. And so communion, this is not a time that anything we do uh, achieves salvation or merits us salvation or grace from God. What we are doing is we are remembering and we are rejoicing and we are proclaiming the perfect victory, the perfect work of Christ that he has done for us. We are proclaiming that the Lord is our salvation. And so we say at this time that if you're not sure that you've made that claim, if you're not sure that you have truly trusted in Christ, then rather than taking the elements, we invite you to, to take Christ, to, to receive him in faith, to accept him as your savior, your, your shepherd king. And, and if you're curious about that, if you'd like to talk more about that, I'd be, I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards, answer any questions that you might have. We would say take uh, Christ today instead of taking the elements but if you have taken Christ if you have professed faith in Christ then uh, our, our pattern our practice as a church family is that we uh, take the bread and receive it individually to reflect our, our individual acceptance our individual salvation in Christ but then we receive the bread we, we take it and hold on to it and then we drink it together as a symbol of our, our unity in Christ so let me pray now for the bread well, gracious Father, we thank you for the, the gift of communion, for the gift of this ordinance that uh, proclaims to us, that reminds us of uh, the death and the resurrection of Christ. We thank you for this bread, which reminds us how Christ's body was broken uh, to break the siege of, of judgment that we deserve, to satisfy the, the, the just penalty that our sin has incurred. Lord, we thank you for this gift that you uh, did not bring your judgment against us as we deserve, but that you brought your judgment against your own son, that you sent him to the cross to pay the price, to bring us into your family, to bring us acceptance with you. So let this now be a time of rejoicing, of resting, of remembering as we take the bread, as we reflect and pray in response to the gift of Christ whose body was broken for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.
pray now for the cup. Father, we confess that as we, we come to you, we are filled with corruption and sin. We are filled with injustice and selfishness and idolatry in our own hearts. And so we, we come to you with that, but we thank you that you have made a way for us to be washed clean. You've made a way for us to be justified, to be made right, to uh, be able to stand in your presence without guilt through the death and resurrection of your Son. We thank you that Jesus' blood was shed in our place, that through this fountain we can be washed clean, we can be made new, we can enter your presence without fear, with fullness of joy, with boldness and acceptance. So we thank you now, Lord. Help us to meditate, to reflect, to proclaim to one another through the saving power of Christ's blood. In his name we pray, amen. Those who have been gathered in by our shepherd king, let us drink with joy together. Well, amen. Well, thank you again for, for joining us and for uh, starting off your, our celebration of Advent together. Uh, we'll, we'll close with a final word of benediction, so please stand uh, and we'll go out together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.